Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is February 18th, middle of President's Day weekend here, third annual reunion of sorts. I know this is a favorite episode of yours. What uh, what are we doing this week? Well, I hope it's a favorite episode of more than just me. I, it is It is absolutely one of my favorite episodes. This is year three. I don't know that we ever thought we would get to year three as a podcast, let alone doing this. So this is the third annual Mount Rushmore type draft. If you are a new listener, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the first two because they are two of certainly my favorite episodes and two of the most fun episodes I think we've done. We did this originally on President's Day weekend two years ago and drafted four presidents each. It was a, a shocking number one pick from Ricky. I'm not going to spoil it for me, for anybody, but go go and listen to that. Last year, we did most important 20th century Americans, not presidential Again, Ricky with some controversial takes, so we'll see. This year, for the third annual, we are doing the most significant dates in American history. There are no parameters on this. You just need to pick one date, and you're going to explain why it's so important or significant. So the universe out there is far broader than certainly the first one that we did, and even the second one that we did in some point. So I'm excited to see where people go. I think we'll probably go a lot of different directions. But um, as usual, we are joined by... Our good friends, Dan Gonzalez and Joe Webster, we are, if this is the first time you've listened to it, we are all high school friends. We all went to Roxbury Latin here in Boston. Dan is currently wearing his Roxbury Latin sweatshirt, repping the repping the brand. So we're, we're thrilled to have them back with us. It's always good to get them and get their perspectives on this, this podcast. Yeah, definitely. I always learn something in these episodes, um, primarily because I come the most unprepared. But, and this year was no different. <laughs> yeah, Brendan was very excited to remove all the parameters so that I couldn't break any rules. This yeah, year. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, we'll see how that goes. But before we get into it, just a quick reminder that this podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two N's. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhill.com wood.com and i have a question for everybody ricky sometimes get these but maybe the three of your brains together might be able to get this our powers combined why was the lumberjack arrested i know it he committed treason <laughs> there we go that's more of a laugh than i normally yeah. get on a rookie so all right uh without further ado we're gonna get into it we're going to deal cards ace two three four to t- determine draft order i'd be curious guys like do you guys have any preference like do you have a desire to be number one or would you prefer to be later in the draft uh I'd be curious your thoughts on that i don't want to be number one because i'm a little bit worried because the, the parameters are so broad on this that uh feel like nervous making the number one pick because yeah. there's a lot of pressure there to pick the most important date. And well, I mean, it can be like, you know, whatever you think it is, but to pick something and then see the reaction and 
Yeah, and that Brendan <laughs> shame you for yeah, three years. You have five centuries to work through, and you, you take this. So I, don't know, I think there's a lot of pressure with the number one pick because I don't think there's a clear number one. All right, so I, I see that perspective. I also think there's less pressure in that way because there's so many good possibilities. Where, like, presidents, I think the three of us, me, Joe, and Dan, all thought there was a clear, you know, 1A and 1B, and then Ricky went off the board with, you know, president number <laughs> yeah. yeah but like i, I, I do president I, do I do think there's a little less pressure all right again uh joe any thoughts on where where you would prefer to be in the draft order so if i say i want to be number one will you give me number one or we still have to go no 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 we're still no. We're in the, this is, uh, um yeah i i agree i think there's not as much pressure for the number one i think I think it's all quite subjective, really. I think there are a number of there. Well, I think there are a handful of dates that are of utmost importance, or the most important, and then there are other dates that are yeah just important. Um, I think you know any of those handful, you can make a good case for why that should be number one. I think uh, you know, assuming you're you're selecting one of those. Yeah, yeah. From that small selection of. Uh, uh, most important dates. I think you're good, but you know if you you're outside of that, you know, like uh, looking at your rookie, might be, yeah. uh, <laughs> might be some criticism from the uh, rest of the table. Yeah, I mean, the only reason I wouldn't want to go number one is because then you have to pick back to back, and you yeah, know that right. I need to do. Uh, right, so we're going to need to do a little readjusting. We're doing it back. now, and Dan gets the number one pick after just complaining that he did not want that pick. So Dan will be picking first. I will be picking second, Joe will be picking third, and Ricky will be picking fourth. This is a snake draft format. So, again, it'll be Dan, myself, Joe, Ricky, and then Ricky, Joe, myself, Dan. So, uh, we'll do four rounds, typical Mount Rushmore style, so four dates apiece. And Dan is currently on the clock with his first date. I, I really didn't think I had a hard number one, and now that he's on the clock, I'm hopeful that he doesn't pick. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna go with July 4th, uh, 1776. Yeah. So United yeah. States yeah. Declaration of Independence, um, well-known statement on human rights. Uh, second sentence is: We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. <clears throat> that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Everyone, I feel like, knows at least those words um, from the Declaration. So, and that can, during the American Revolution, uh, the Declaration explains why the 13 colonies that are at war with the Kingdom of Great Britain regarded themselves as 13 independent sovereign states and no longer subject to British colonial rule. Um, with the Declaration, the 13 states took a collective first step in forming the U.S. and the fact of formalized the American Revolutionary War, which had been ongoing since April 1773. 1775. Um, so, we, you know, I think uh, this is like a fitting number one. Um, we're going purely just, I mean, the, the podcast is biggest piece in U.S. history. And yeah. We wouldn't have the U.S. without this. Yeah. So I think that's probably a fitting way to, to start it off. So glad I didn't, I'm glad I didn't put you that number one pick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think if there was a one, one, this is it. This is the one I, this was number one on my big board too. I think it's a, it's, the, in my opinion, the right pick. Again, interesting, July 4th is the date that it was kind of adopted, but and it's obviously the date we celebrate on it. But I think most 
historians know that it wasn't signed until largely like August 2nd that year, but um, still obviously a huge date. Thomas Jefferson, the main author of it, but the Committee of Five included Ben Franklin, John Adams, and then two like lesser known, but no less important uh, members, um, Roger Sherman. Now I'm going to blank on the fifth guy. Robert Livingston. Robert Livingston. Thank you, Joe. But Roger Sherman in particular, cool trivia fact about him. He's the only guy to sign like the four major founding papers of the United States. So he signed the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, the U.S. Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. I think he was like, or he, or he was one of the few, he signed, the only guy that signed all four. Um, but yeah, I, I think one thing in doing my research about this I thought was interesting was the line that you quoted, like we hold these truths to be so all men, all men are created equal. It wasn't really necessarily widely quoted the first in the first century of the United States, but Lincoln really brought it back and used used that text extensively. And after Lincoln, who who kind of established it as like the center of his political philosophy and as like what he believed the United States should try to live up to those words, that's when it really took on this right um, reverential document in in U.S. history. Yeah, I, I mean, I I think obviously you can't go wrong with what we consider sort of the birth of the United States. I do think it's interesting that, like like Kelly was saying, it didn't even take, uh, it wasn't even sort of ratified or come into effect at, on that date, July 4th. Largely, it was a meaningless time because we were in the midst of the Revolutionary War and that war didn't end for like another seven or eight years. Yeah. And so to the British, it's like, I'm, you know, good for you guys. We're still like here. And so you're not exactly independent at this moment. Um, but of course, like, you know, beyond what it has come to symbolize, I think there is something to say for, for what it continued to set into motion. But as we were sort of haggling over, like, should there be pointed rules I think this is one where like when you think about the Rev- American Revolution, this is probably the date that always comes to mind yeah. in large, you know, for a number of reasons, it like constantly being there. But I think this specific day, July 4th, 1776, is largely irrelevant in the context of like what was going on. Symbolic. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Joe, anything else to add there? Nope. All right. Well, with that, we'll move on to myself with the second pick. And I am going to pick a day that will live in infamy, December 7th, 1941, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. So this is, I think, for most people probably understand that this was a strike at the naval base of Pearl Harbor by the Japanese military. It killed uh, over a thousand United States troops but it also most importantly launched the united states into world war ii prior to the japanese attack there was widespread debate amongst politicians in the united states about whether or not to get involved in world war ii but president roosevelt at the time was a little bit was hesitant to, to do so again the united states was coming out of world war ii we were still in the midst of the the recession the, the great depression and uh, he was reluctant to get involved in another European war and put American lives at stake. It, he he personally was more wanted to get involved, but many politicians did not. Um, and this forced everyone's hand. 
Obviously, he gets up in 19, on December 8th, 1941, and delivers one of the most famous lines, one of the most famous speeches in American history, and launches the United States into World War II, where the United States goes into it as an emerging world power and leaves as one of the two world superpowers. And it, it brings the United States... United States entrance into World War II, I think, is one of, the, one of, if not the main reason that the United States emerges from the Great Depression. It launches the United States military industrial complex. It, again, propels the United States into a, a superpower status, which it didn't have previously occupied. And importantly, it, it helps stop the imperialism of Japan and the Nazism and of and fascism of uh, of Germany and the Nazis, and it, it helps protect democracy worldwide. And so I think for all of those reasons, it's one of the most important dates in U.S. history for me. Yeah, I wish I could have uh, guessed your pick before you picked it. I think that was I, that wasn't going to be an obvious pick that you would have um, on, on your first go around. It was also very high on my board. I wanted to drop in like a few other things that I was thinking about, you know, beyond what you're saying uh, of the sort of the turning point that really kind of catapults the U.S. as like at that time, sort of the preeminent global superpower. You can sort of talk about Russia and the Soviet Union a- after after World War II as sort of the, the like the the competitor on the on the East. But I think you know you look at the rise in women in the workforce um, following World War II. There's uh, so many different. Uh, I mean, obviously we were coming out of uh, the Great Depression. So it was this huge like economic boost. You talked about the military industrial complex, but there are all the other types of things that have really sort of framed or or uh, kind of architected the way that like society started to unfold in the 50s, 60s and 70s. So like the GI Bill, um, all kinds of things for better or for worse, actually, because Obviously, we know that not everybody was afforded the same opportunities following World War II, but there was this huge uh, push to like sort of reinvent and like and 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 think about American society moving forward following that war and how it really just like invigorated our economy um, and beyond, obviously we had some some great successes on on the battlefield which really set us up um going into sort of the second half of the century yeah what i did is that i found when i was uh creating my list of dates that several of the dates here are very much related to significant moments in which the united states global standing was like significantly improved like uh so, you know, World War One, World War II, those were very significant wars that the U.S. on the other side of those wars came out in a significantly better position mm-hmm. um, on the global stage. I think one of the reasons why is because the U.S. was fighting war on the other side of the, of the world. There really wasn't any significant, um, you know, damage on the homeland. So um, I think... Uh, I mean, you're just, I guess, geographic position in the United States played a significant role and and I guess how the United States kind of used those wars as kind of like Mario Kart speed boost, kind of just 
you know, ec- you know, military, you know, military improvements, economic improvements, you know, um, you know, international treaties and agreements, you know, uh, creating the UN following the um, World War II is kind of a, it's kind of, I guess when you win wars, like as at least the United States case, like it, they, well, these two wars at least, they've been pretty significant boons in never different, never different. Yeah. Of, uh, I, I think that's also a really interesting point just thinking about how it has been framed or like how it was taught in our U.S. history classes right like this World War II being this huge U.S. victory and obviously we had a, a, an instrumental role in the outcome but it was way you know it had been going on for a few years before we entered the war, as, as Kelly pointed out, you know, we were sort of drawn into it by this attack on our home soil. But also, like, part of the reason that we came out of it so well, we did have an immense amount of casualties, but nothing close to, you know, what the Brits suffered, what the Germans suffered, what Russians suffered, right? right. Um, and so, like, that was, while all of Europe was sort of picking itself back together again in tatters, we had all of it, you know, we had both been part of the victorious side. So we weren't going to be kind of penalized in any of like the post-war treaties or any of things like that. And then on top of it, our infrastructure and our country and our economy were largely unscathed uh, while the rest of the world was sort of picking itself up, um, uh, you know, from the ground. So I think like elements like that really worked in our favor coming out of the war and sort of setting up for the next like 30, 40 years, really. And even in some ways to present day. All right. Uh, then we'll move on to pick three. Joseph, that is you. All right. So to the third overall pick and for my first pick, uh, the day I'll choose is uh, April 2nd, 1988. No way. <laughs> 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 Kelly's first pick. Very, yes, very, very important day. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> um, no, but uh, so uh, <laughs> okay, no, I, I, just, uh, I do say friends of the pod, Sarah Le- Leveris did uh, suggest that. Okay. All right. So, yeah, my real choice. Uh, Contentious day in the pressure group. Because Dan never <laughs> Um, all right, so uh, September 17, 1787. Good choice. Uh, signing of the United States Constitution. So um, it was a written document that outlined the framework for the federal government and established the system of government laws that remain in place to this day. The Constitution is divided into three parts. The first is known as the preamble, which sets forth the general principles and purposes of the Constitution, including the establishment of a more perfect union, the promotion of justice, the provision of common defense, and the promotion of the general warfare. The second part of the Constitution is the seven articles that outline the structure and powers of the federal government. Article one establishes the legislative branch of government. Article two establishes the executive branch. Article three establishes the judicial branch. The other articles cover topics such as the relationship between the states and the federal government, the process for amending the Constitution, and the supremacy of the Constitution over state laws. The third part of the Constitution is the amendments, which are additional provisions that have been added to the original text over time. Uh, and then, of course, the first two amendments known as the Bill of Rights were added in 1791 to protect individual liberties and rights, such as the freedom of speech, religion, and the press. Um, I'm sure we will touch on that a bit more later. But, you know, of course, 
it doesn't really require that much explanation, but it's a foundational document of the country. Um, you know, it's uh, it's the supreme law of the land, and um, you know, you know, it's you know foundational bedrock on which the American society is built upon. So, um, yeah, no, I think that makes a, a ton of sense. It's uh, it's the oldest and longest standing written national constitution in the world today. It, it's established the basises for so many other constitutions around the world. It's a landmark document. It's super short. Like you kind of hit pretty much all of the part of it, but like, it's not difficult to go and read the constitution because it's not long. And I'm sure most people listening to this know, but constitution wasn't the first government in the United States. We had the articles of confederation in place for most of the 1780s up until they called the constitution convention because it didn't work. And originally the constitution convention was just to try to amend the articles of confederation. It was a little bit radical that people, when they went back to try to amend it, were pretty much like, we just need a whole new government. And it's, it's an incredible credit to them. Obviously, the Constitution and and its various aspects are still hotly debated and controversial today. But to like the founders' credit, we're talking 230 years later, this Constitution has seen incredible, unfathomable changes in the country and in the world. And it still main, remains and as it's, you know, the, the foundational document of our laws and society today. It's a it's yeah, I think it's a great choice. I don't know much. That was perfect. Good summary. <laughs> All right. Yeah, hard to argue with that. I, it's I, another one of those things that I think is interesting that obviously we regard the Constitution as a certain level of reverence, but even at the time, there was like a lot of kind of consternation around it. There were, I mean, um, it required nine of the what 13 yeah. original states to ratify it and that didn't happen like right away because there was a lot of one as joe mentioned it didn't at the time include the bill of rights that is a set of amendments to the constitution but i i mean i i i think that particular piece of history i probably didn't know as well or really at all in the sense that it the way that I remember it from U.S. history class is like we all they all got together. We wrote this Declaration of Independence. And then like, you know, a couple of years later, we all got together again. We wrote this Constitution and everyone was like patting themselves on the back being like we did this great thing. And this is these are the you know what the founding fathers intended. But obviously there were many founding fathers there who were like, I don't think I don't know if all of this works or I don't know if this is. Exactly right. In large part because it, it was omitting the Bill of Rights, which, you know, we kind of regard as a part of the original Constitution today. But um, still, just the idea, because we talk a lot about about like our present day politics and how it's never been more divisive. But that break between Federalists um, and Anti-Federalists, and anti-federalists yeah. right, at the time was significant. Totally agree. And the Federalist Papers, which I'm reading slowly but surely now, is like yeah. it's like the argument to adopt it. And Ricky, as you correctly point out, it wasn't automatic. And I, again, I think it's a huge credit to the people that did this. That like there was no real model for what they did. And again, like they tried with the Articles of Confederation, it failed. And this was a real question of like, is the country going to be able to exist? We find we have won the war, like we've declared our independence. Now are we going to exist? And for them to come up with a document that's again withstood 230 years is it really is it's incredible with that all said as we've 
done before. Like, obviously, there are reasons why the Constitution had flaws, which Bill of Rights fixes some of them. But when we talk about the three-fifths compromise or like the way it, it treats Black Americans or leaves out women and doesn't mention slavery, there are flaws in the Constitution. Still an incredible achievement for, for them to come up with this document. All right. Well, on to pick number four, final pick of the fourth round, and always the most exciting oh, pick Ricky. in these drafts. <laughs> Ricky's first pick. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, Ooh. Ooh. All right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say this date. I'm so worried. <laughs> and I'll start by saying, can 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 it be identified? July third. 1863. All right, so 1863, we're in the middle oh. of. I don't think the Emancipation Proclamation is then. Yeah, I think January one. That's what it definitely goes into effect. July third, uh, Battle of Gettysburg. Battle of Gettysburg. Oh, okay. So I did. I. I mean, I. Uh, if you if you if you had a peek into my big board, those were they were kind of like together, and I, and and this is sort of you know, what I was struggling with because it, there is uh, chicken and the egg is not the right term, but I chose the battle of Gettysburg uh, single like, I think the most emblematic battle of the civil war. If you know one, this is probably the one that you're going to know the largest number of casualties um, in a, in a, in three day fighting between the uh, uh, general Meade's uh, union army and Robert E. Lee's Confederate army over 50,000 um, casualties in that three-day period, which for uh, for a civil war is a staggering number of people. But in general, the Battle of Gettysburg is regarded as the turning point in the war. Obviously, it did last uh, several years after that, but uh, the Confederate army had just won a a string of battles under Lee, and he was basically saying, I'm going to bring I, you know, I need to win something north of the Mason-Dixon and Gettysburg, Pennsylvania is, you know, one is the place that they sort of had this massive uh, encounter and the Union Army winning that really set the stage for kind of the, the turning of the tide, if you will. A lot of historians will point to sort of a missed opportunity to kind of chase down this Confederate Army, but I think a lot of what happened speaks to the difficulty of a civil war that people are sort of fighting against their own countrymen. And it's like, it's not in, in, in so much of the way that you're able to kind of frame the other side as being evil. And, you know, we, we just need to kill and vanquish or whatever terms. I think those things were very hard for people. Um, I mean, in part, because there was a lot of sort of consternation over the idea of, what are we fighting for? Um, while in, you know, as in our view of history, obviously this is this great prize abolitionism and or you know, abolishing the institution of slavery, which is obviously a necessary thing in our, for us to go through as a country and obviously the right thing to be fighting for, but in the context of 1863, Probably not. I mean, as we know how the rest of history has unfolded to date, not universally accepted. So there was <clears throat> there was a number of things like that. But yeah, I chose 
Gettysburg over the Emancipation Proclamation, although I wouldn't be surprised if someone else chose it. And I would hope that we get to talk about it a little bit, in part because if I think about what, you know, where we could have been had something like that gone in the other direction, um, it, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a little bit scary. I don't know what that, like, there's like that dystopian show on Hulu, like if Hitler and like if Germany had won World War II kind of thing, like there is a lot of that sort of element, like had the Confederates won a huge victory at Gettysburg, where would, where would the United States be? Yeah, I think that's a, a totally fair point. You've, you've characterized it well as the turning point. And like you said, it's obviously history seems so linear and it's written by the victors. And so it just seems like inevitable that the union would have won the war. And maybe we would have, we, like the union would have won the war eventually. But at the time, the Confederates had kind of surprised everyone over the first two, first two years and had done quite well. And you could argue, I think fairly, that they were winning the war at that point. And as you said, this was their first invasion of the North, which was kind of controversial amongst Lee and his generals. But they did. And like you said, if they win here, things might have been really, really different for at least the foreseeable, if not the current current future. And uh, yeah, it's and it obviously gives us the Gettysburg Address, which has got to be like a top five speech in American history. It um, it leads to really, I think it's the beginning of the end for the Confederacy in a lot of ways. Um, my person, it's my, this is a personal thing. My favorite book of all time is called Killer Angels, which is like a, a yeah, yeah fictional account of that. Highly recommend anyone to read that. And also was the reason why Joshua Chamberlain, who's ended up being a Bowdoin guy, um, but it was a general for on uh, Little Round Top. It was kind of like the flank of the Union Army was like a always been kind of a hero of mine so um yeah that's a good selection first time you've gotten that in like three years so <laughs> all right uh, one kelly approved. yeah there you go which is what it's all about Feels all right about uh well ricky you are back back on the clock yeah this is this is my nightmare um so I guess I, I'll switch gears a bit and go more. Mo- mo- yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, you know that I like to spread spread things sure. out and uh, and cover as many bases as I can. Um, I guess my next most important date, September eleventh, two thousand and one. Um, another sort of day that will live in infamy. I think the events of September eleventh, and I won't really get into the actual events but like the which i think i believe we're all intimately familiar with in in one way or another but that it really set the course for all of our kind of foreign policy in in the 21st century really how we have obviously you know the iraq war afghanistan all of those things really stem directly from september 11th but but even more so just like how we have had to conduct ourselves like as a nation this threat of terrorism has had so many different types of effects from like the patriot act to like you know surveillance on american citizens to to just all sorts of things and it kind of like it was another uh i don't know if wake up call is the right answer but in in the similar way that that Pearl Harbor sort of challenged this notion that we could be attacked on home soil which 
you know, we have the two best defenses in the world in the Pacific ocean on one side and the Atlantic ocean on the other side, right? Like we're very well positioned, um, you know, relative to, you know, our counterparts in, in Europe, for example, to have these kind of natural defenses on, on either side. And so to have some entity figure out a way to carry out an attack on our home soil has always been um, obviously very difficult, but something that we don't really consider or hadn't really considered. Um, it's interesting, again, I think if we think about the total number of people who died, and obviously even even one person is too many, but um, I, Brendan would probably be able to correct me if I'm wrong, but something like 1,300 or 1,400 on the day. Um, I'm, I'm going to say 3,000. 3,000? 3, yeah. Okay. So 3,000 people. We, you know, the amount of things that have sort of come out of that in terms of uh reaction on both the foreign policy side and how we like reinvest, you know, reinvested in Homeland Security and redid our entire TSA system. It's not to say that those things weren't needed, but you think about some of the other things that we're dealing with, gun violence in the US or other issues that we tolerate that have much higher casualty rates, like on an annual basis than foreign terrorism, for instance. Um, but how an event like this can really sort of capture sort of the imagination of an entire nation at once. And I, I mean, we've also talked about some of the, the benefits in, in terms of we've come out of a very, very devi- divisive election. And for a, a certain amount of time, there was a lot of unity between parties, between all sorts of different people and those kinds of disasters will will drive that but i think part of what we're also finding out is that is a bit limited too and that people's memories are short and we say we'll never forget but we also that people move on and, and keep sort of doing um yeah and and things change and 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 life changes and so that that I don't know. I don't know. I, what, and I, I struggled with this one too. Cause I was like, is this just because this is like what I would think of as like the biggest event in my lifetime and is my lifetime too short to think about it. Yeah. But I, I don't know. It's one of those things that if everybody can tell you where they were on a certain day, I feel like it belongs in that list. Yeah. You're, I mean, like, yeah, I, I think you touched upon it, but just in terms of like, obviously everything that happened within the U.S., but then also what it caused in terms of, like, the war on terror in terms of, like, the U.S. and, you know, the next, you know, 10, 15 years in terms of um, their actions abroad, too. Um, we just got out of, out of Afghanistan last year. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like, it's been, yeah, it's been yeah. 20 years. Yeah. Um, so, obviously, there's um, a lot of different views about how the U.S. conducted, um, you know, like, uh, you know, actions abroad, and um, I think that's uh, controversial, you know, but um, yeah, I think it's like not only did it have a major impact in the U.S., like as you mentioned, like the Department of Homeland Security was created by like the Homeland Security Act of 2002 um, to coordinate domestic anti-terrorism efforts. You know, the U.S. Patriot Act kind of expanding um, federal government powers in terms of like what you can do with detainees. 
Um, so not only did it have like, you know, major impacts in terms of like policy, you know, within the US, but also in terms of like actions abroad as well. So Yeah, I, as you said, Ricky, it's the defining event of our our lives. It's the defining event of millennials' lives. I, I really think it's not an overstatement to say that it changed everything. And it, it changed it changed our modern world, even like obviously teaching and working with young people. I just think of like how different my middle school experience was, like how naive I was. As you said, like when you can point to where you were at that day, like we were all in eighth grade at Roxbury Latin together. Remember exactly where I was and just not understanding at all. It just, it just, it not understand like the global and like when I taught eighth graders in middle school, like unfortunately like they were much more aware of these. And it's kind of this better, obviously better or worse, right? They're, they're so much more like worldly than I was because that's the world in which, they, which they've been brought up in. And it just has, it has changed really, like I said, like it changed everything. I don't think it's overstating it to say that. I had Pearl Harbor and September 11th in kind of a category by themselves. And I don't, I think you're totally right to acknowledge the significance of it. Two for two on Brennan wow. Kelly. Approval. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. You're, we're on a really good run so far. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. So it's too bricky out of his board. So I don't know. You may it gets up time to do some research. But. All right, we are back to Joe for pick number six. Uh, all right, pick number six. My second pick, uh, January first, eighteen oh one, the inauguration of Thomas Jefferson. Wow, this uh, is the first one not on my board. No, all right, yeah, yeah. that's good. I got like. I'll tell you what. <laughs> so, uh, the, the inauguration uh, was significant for a couple of reasons. The first was that it marked the first time in American history that power was peacefully transferred from one political party to another. Um, this is particularly important because Washington, the first president of the United States, was hugely popular and uh, many supporters urged him to run for a third term. However, he willingly and voluntarily relinquished power and he set an example for future presidents to follow and helped to solidify the principles of democratic governance respect for the rule of law in the United States. Um, so his decision helped to demonstrate the United States was not just another monarchy or dictatorship where leaders clung to power indefinitely. And secondly, the inauguration of Jefferson was significant because it represented a shift in the direction of American politics and government. Jefferson was a champion of limited government and individual liberty, and his election represented a rejection of the Federalist Party's emphasis on a strong central, central government and close ties to Great Britain. Uh, Jefferson's vision of a decentralized agrarian republic would come to shape American political and social life for many years to come. So, you know, I think in the you know in the the years that preceded this inauguration, the United States created the Constitution and ratified the Bill of Rights. Then it becomes a question of: Do you actually follow the rules that you have? set for yourself. So this is just a really good example that, you know, the, the Constitution wasn't just for show um, with actions by, uh, you know, politicians like Washington, he helped to usher along, you know, following the rules that were set in place. And it set a good precedent for, um, you know, many years to come. I think, you know, in, in light of the last few years, I think there's a lot of discussion about the transition of power. You know, it's, uh, it, you know, I guess we kind of, it, it can be taken for granted uh, to yeah. a degree. So um, I think this is just a really example of early days where, um, you know, we, we follow the rules we set for ourselves, set for ourselves, which um, set a strong precedent for the future. I like it. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm not going to, I'm not going to use this as one of my dates, but I had uh, Washington's farewell um, on my list for probably a similar reason, Joe, where 
there's nothing in the Constitution, or if there wasn't at least at the time prior to the, I'm going to say the 24th Amendment, someone can fact check that, uh, that put like term limits in for presidents. And so Washington in 1796 stepping down and just announcing that he's not going to run for a third term, I think is hugely significant in American politics. And I think you're kind of taking it a, a different step where theoretically he stepped down with Adams, who was continuing his own policies, where here Jefferson's really taking a step away from the Washington Adams Federalist Party. And it's more significant in some ways. I think I appreciate that because not something I'd really thought of. But when you're transferring it to someone that has that believes different things than you, it has different like um, political philosophy. You that's much more difficult. And as people probably know, that 1800 the election of 1800 was as contentious as really any that we've ever had between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. Adams and Jefferson hated each other by that point, and so the fact that we were able to emerge from that successfully is definitely a significant moment. So yeah, good, yeah, good pick. Oh, it's me. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's me. Um, well, I'm going to stick in, in that time frame, and we've kind of beaten around the bush enough on this. I'm going to go December 15th, 1791, which is the ratification of the Bill of Rights. Uh, we've talked about it extensively, but I certainly would submit that without the Bill of Rights, we don't have the Constitution and we don't have the government. As Ricky correctly pointed out, there was a huge debate between the Federalists and Anti-Federalists over the Constitution, and huge credit to James Madison, who had this solution of, well, if you pass the Constitution, we'll also get this Bill of Rights. Originally, there were 17, then there were 12, and there were 10. But these are, when we when you, people think about the rights guaranteed by the Constitution, mostly they're thinking about the rights that were guaranteed by the Bill of Rights. And certainly the five freedoms in the First Amendment, the freedom of religion, uh, press, speech. Their arms. Nope, not yet. Re religion, press, speech, um, petition, and the right to gather. I'm going to say this. It, that's a different um, assembly. Reason. Assembly. There we go. Look, all right, I got it. And as Joe said, two, the right to bear arms. Three, we have like, uh, you don't have to house soldiers. Four, we got um, search, and seizure. search and seizure, which is still so crucial today. Five has a bunch of things, but um, including like what became the Miranda rights, like you don't have to self-incriminate. Uh, then you have like things like due process of law, speedy trial, freedom from cruel and unusual punishment, ninth and tenth, which I think are criminally underrated. Rights should be retained by the people in the states. Like these are the things that I think are the bedrocks of really the freedoms that we have today and are still certainly debated. But uh, I, this is to me uh, up there one one B to maybe the Constitution's one A or if, I mean Declaration of Independence. Where we're talking about the most important documents. Bill of Rights is right up there. So. That, that's why I'm making that pick. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, yeah, I yeah. yeah. that long. So, yeah, I mean, I guess if I'm gonna, if I, if I were to add anything, I think the, I think it is like you say that that although when people think about sort of the foundational elements of the constitution that they often think about actually things that are guaranteed in the bill of rights that were not part of the constitution It is also interesting how often people reference amendments in the bill of rights and just like we struggled a bit to come up with uh some of the portions of them like oftentimes people will say you know this guaranteed in my second amendment right but not actually know what it is that the second amendment is saying or guaranteeing or you know pleading the fifth or 
whatever, whatever else. I think, I think it's interesting how pervasive sort of these references are to these bills, to, to the bill of rights while also there's still a largely, I don't want to say misunderstood, but they're in, in some cases, even intentionally vague, like what does it mean to have a free press or what, you know, what does freedom of speech like really mean things that we're still kind of grappling with today. But at the same time, we knew that, or we knew, they knew that to some degree we had to put this on paper that like, some of the things that we were fighting for against the British, if we do not control them within ourselves, we could face that same tyranny, that same like oppression from our own government if we're not sort of careful about how we construct this. And I think even to your uh, point, Joe, about how Washington turned over sort of the reins of power, it, it kind of all flows in there. And then why so many other countries as they have sought to establish their democracies have looked to our original constitution, to our declaration of independence, to our bill of rights, because of all these things that the framers were struggling with while they were trying to. Yeah. Why, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's amazing how relevant yeah. these things yeah. are today. For sure. Again, to their immense credit in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. Um, Dan's up for the final pick of the second round. I'm going to go with July 16th, 1945. <clears throat> so the Trinity test. Um, so this is part of the Manhattan Project. Um, so the Manhattan Project was a research and development undertaking during World War II, which produced the first nuclear weapons. So this is between like 1942 and 1946. It was led by uh, General Leslie Groves, and then nuclear physicist, physicist Robert, Robert Oppenheimer, who movie coming out soon, which is pretty good. But uh, that's like the more popular name that everyone knows who was the director of the Los Alamos Laboratory. So in July 16th, 1945 was the first um, explosion of a nuclear device um, in, in New Mexico. But um, I think like the, the more significant, the, the significance of this is that it ultimately cleared the way or, you know, it's that was a successful detonation of a nuclear weapon which ultimately led to like, the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So, um, which, you know, the, those were occurred on August 6th and August 9th, 1945. And then within about a week, um, it essentially um, not ended World War II, but like, you know, Japan um, pretty much conceded. But um, so I think, and it also kind of led down the way to like, the nuclear arms race. If you're just kind of looking in terms of like impact down the road, um, like the, the arms race between like the Soviet Union and the U.S. Um, in like the middle to late um, 20th century, um, also just had um, you know like significant impact then as well. So I think like the the first detonation had like a bunch of a major impact once like people realized that nuclear weapons were a possibility. Yeah, so I'm, I got a question for you. I'm curious why you picked that date, which I didn't have, but I did have the sixth or the ninth on yeah. my my list. So why the date of the first successful test versus the date of the actual bombing? Um, I think it's because like you, because then we knew what the what the capabilities were at that point. Um, obviously, I think like if you're looking back in terms of like impact, you know, the sixth and the ninth are like bigger dates because you know you know obviously what happened but i think like the fact that they realized that they had created an effective weapon on that date um 
like when it was actually created. So I think I wanted like creation rather than like, the use of the weapon. Fair, fair. I'm just saying, more yeah. intrigued. Yeah, obviously, I think we we probably all had those yeah. dates somewhere on our mm-hmm. board of in, in some fashion. It's obviously it's the only two times that atomic nuclear weapons have ever been used in history in the United States. The first to get there, and kind of the classic. You, what, what do they say about scientists when you you're so worried about what you can do? You don't you're not worried about if you should do it. Mm-hmm. And like, um, and that's one of those things I think pe- people have long said that. And maybe it was inevitable, scientific progress being what it is, but the fact that you develop these things, you, perhaps you never think how they're going to be used. And yeah, as Daniel correctly point out, we're we're in the nuclear age, and we will be for certainly a foreseeable future, and it continues to affect you know, conversations and foreign policy today. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was. Uh, August 6th, 1945, was the bombing of Hiroshima, the first use of a nuclear weapon, um, was definitely going to be on, on my list uh, where it's still available. I will count it as off the board. Yeah. The I think I think the things I was going to highlight about it are different. For me, coming off of sort of World War One and then the majority of World War II, where when I think about how I learned U.S. history in each of these conflicts, we had a very clear kind of good versus evil. There's one side like trying to kind of take over the world or like take over certain parts of like other areas that were sort of self-determined and able to run their own kind of countries. And you had Prussia and then, of course, Germany under Hitler and the the problem of course with what happened in Hiroshima is that we killed over 140,000 people in a very very short span the vast vast majority of those people were civilians obviously in, in many ways from a political standpoint and you know as we taught as we alluded to earlier in terms of what World War II did to the U.S. in terms of prominence on the global stage, that is not in short uh, order due to to what happened, like, as Dan said, with our successful testing of a nuclear weapon, but then even further, our demonstration of not only that it works on people, but that we are willing to use it on people. And obviously, thankfully, in the prevailing decades, we've never seen something like that again. But to me, and and I, I do remember people arguing with me that, well, it actually brought a speedier end to World War II, then, you know, you would have had this prolonged fighting in Japan had you not had this. I would just say that no matter what, if you're killing a hundred and 20,000 civilians in a single day, that is not a good look. Not a good look. That yeah, is not understatement of the century. Right? Yeah. In a way that it really like challenges that notion of, you know, a, I mean, I think the Marines or the Navy or something used to advertise with this, like a global force for good, right? There's something inherently wrong about that. And, and something also scary given you know, if, if, if you take all of the facts of the war out now, obviously it's difficult, but like you think about 
what was going on in the United States in the 1950s, right? This is pre-Civil Rights Act. And then you add on to it, you know, you dropped an atomic bomb on another country, like who is the, you know, the rogue actor in terms of how we think about the globe today? Like who needs to be stopped? Like who's out there doing the bad things? And like, you would probably look to that entity and say, it, it might be this one. And that's kind of a scary thing. Now, obviously we've come a long way in many different ways, but I don't know, these kinds of things sort of remind me that it isn't always that black and white of this like good versus evil that there are at the end of the day, just people making decisions. And some of those are good and some of those are very bad. Um, but I think, I, I feel like, I think we need to keep that in mind at all times when it comes to like, you know, present day, like what's going on with in, in Russia and Ukraine or in, in all of these places that, that we're, I think our job and our duty as citizens of the world is to like try and make this place a better place and not think so much about like, am I on, am I fighting, am I on the side of good fighting evil all the time? I don't know. It's a, a yeah. Well, Dan, I'm kind of disappointed you stole that from Rick. No one ran. That was uh, Dan's pick, everything. Uh, well, it was, uh, Highly approved. Yeah, you get my standard, yeah. which apparently is worth nothing. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, Dan, you're still up with the first pick of round three. A couple here. Um, I think I'm going to go with the best real estate deal ever. Oh, wow. So this is better than Brendan's and your square. <laughs> oh, wow. Seven, eight years ago. Adjusted for inflation? or <laughs> <laughs> So... I'm not sure if I had the exact date right. I think July 4th, 1803, roughly. I don't, I don't know. But that's what my, that's what my uh, half-assed internet research showed. <laughs> so I'm going to go with the Louisiana Purchase. I hit April 30th. Anybody else said this? I'm not, not on my board. Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So um, acquisition of the territory of Louisiana by the U.S. from the French First Republic in 1803 in return for $15 million or $18 per square mile. The U.S. acquired a total of 828,000 square square miles. Yeah, in Middle America. Um, so basically, this was like I think from this purchase included land from 15 current U.S. states and two Canadian provinces. No big deal. Um, so just an absolutely just it, it kind of just reshaped the country. Um, it gave um, the U.S. Possession of an important city of New Orleans, which was vital to like the economies of the Western states and territories um, for like you know global markets. Um, it also gave the U.S. complete control of the Mississippi River. Um, for farmers no longer had to rely on the whims of you know of a foreign nation to ensure that their goods and produce could access global markets. Um, ob- obviously, not all good stuff. Um, you know, while we did acquire this from. From France, essentially, um, this also displaced a number of Native Americans. Um, so there was, when you're looking back on it, obviously it, it greatly expanded the footprint of the U.S. I mean, like the U.S. almost like doubled in size yeah. from basically when you're looking at yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so I think it just completely changed like, the landscape of the U.S. Um, for great, great deal. So uh, that's what I have for number three. Yeah, I I also had this 
on in 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 my list for contention. I think I think another thing I just like didn't quite understand about I feel like the Louisiana purchase is such a misnomer. You kind of think, all right, Louisiana. we we got Louisiana. Yeah. Now obviously New Orleans was was the the highlight, um, but it was basically like start in Louisiana and draw a line basically directly north, including all of the Mississippi River, which yeah. pre pre cars was a very very important waterway. And if you just think about like the westward expansion of the United States, if we had to fight France for that coming off of the coming off of our of the American Revolution against the British, it would be a tall task. And and thinking about kind of the development of the United States, it's just like it was it was a huge boon. Obviously, France had a lot of shit going on themselves and so it was like all right we're just going to cut bait here yeah and i think it also i mean for a number of reasons also made sense for them but some some of the you know we were talking about how the united states just like launches itself into prominence after some of these conflicts like our natural resource base is like unpar is completely unparalleled when you think of what we are able to draw from from our own country between like agriculture in the Midwest and then trade within between interstate trade, like how we were just able to grow. And a large part of that is that once we started removing other, you know, foreign countries from territories, then we could really just start that kind of explosion of our economy domestically, which is like, you know, a huge, huge aspect of how we are able to continue to compete on a global stage, despite like how far we have come in terms of like standard of living and all that kind of thing. So it's, yeah, I'm, I think it was hugely important. Yeah, sure. I think, I think it broadens now that I'm just like thinking about it, it broadens the scope of us ambition and potential where before, I mean, for those 25 years was really just establishing yourself as a country. And you kind of, you maybe have, like the Northwest Territories where you have like Indiana and Ohio, they're kind of coming in. But kind of like I was saying before, where like history just seems like so preordained when you look back on it. At the time, the United States is a very po- small part of like the continent of North America. And you have France and Spain essentially surrounding it. And this, as Danny Crocky pointed out, doubles the size of the continent. and kind of leads to this idea that takes over the 18th century of manifest destiny, which pushes the United States south to, you know, to what was Spanish and Mexican territory and, and West out to California and even to some of like the islands off the coast of the United States. Yeah. It's not, I don't know that any of that's possible without this purchase. So yeah, another, another really good pick. Okay. Uh, I'm up for this pick. Uh, I wanted something from this era and I have six dates from this era and I don't know that this is the right one. <laughs> I'm going to go with April 12th, 1861. Anybody got a... Uh, one second, one second. Let me see if I got this. 1861. Sorry. I'm curious if I have this. Is this the um, Lincoln-Douglas debate? No. No, I don't have this. All right. So this is the the attack on Fort Sumter oh, in, in, the first shot, in the South Carolina. War. So yeah. it's the first shots of the Civil War. Obviously, this is the culmination of yeah. decades of debate and controversy 
over chiefly slavery, but certainly other things as well, and tariffs and states' rights and manufacturing and all sorts of things, but again, chiefly slavery. President Lincoln gets elected in November of 1860. In December, South Carolina secedes, followed by six other Southern slave-owning states in January and February. But nothing, it's kind of all in limbo in, until this date of February, I mean, of, of Friday, April 12th, 1861, where Confederate forces open fire on Fort Sumter. Uh, this lasts for a little over 24 hours before the Union forces surrender the fort. At that point, Lincoln calls, issues a call to arms and essentially says that we're in a state of war with with the Confederate states and yeah, the rest, as they say, is history. We 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 are launched into a civil war, which again maybe had been brewing for the you could argue the entirety of the country's history. But until it actually happens, you all there's always hope for diplomacy, always hope that cooler heads will prevail. But you end up leading to the deaths, as Ricky, as you pointed out when we talked about Gettysburg, of eight hundred plus thousand men, and I think eight percent of like the you know white male population. It's it's staggering, staggering numbers and it, it starts with the state. So I picked it. Yeah, th- and this I think like the pointing to the the starting points for, for um for like this for the Civil War, there there's obviously like a very clear this is the first time you have the shots fired, but as you said, something that's been brewing for a long time, something that w- was obviously a big point of contention also between the the founders. And, and as, as you guys both pointed out, like what we say in the de- declaration of independence, all men are created equal with certain inalien- inalienable rights. And then of course, at the same time, we have this little institution of slavery, which completely contradicts, you know, what is what we think of as like sort of our most common and core principle that like everybody has this opportunity at the pursuit of happiness. That is, uh, yeah, it, I mean, it's, yeah, pointing to the start of that is very difficult. I and I don't want to steal anybody else's thing, but whatever, I'm going to do it. The like, oh, I, I thought a lot about the like, still look like, like, here. like I, all right, all right, fine. I'm sure, <laughs> I, I would be whatever. surprised if somebody else doesn't have something from this era, but whatever. If, if not, we can always talk about it at the end of other dates that we didn't have. All right, so let's go on to the Joe. You're up next with your third pick and the third pick in the third round. All right, next pick, uh, October 29th, 1929, Black Tuesday. Oh, great choice. I wanted that one. I thought I might. I thought I might. I thought I might hang around until the end. Sorry, Dan. Too nice. slow. Um, so, Black Tuesday um, marked the day of the most devastating stock market crash in American history and is considered the start of the Great Depression. Um, so, the crash had a ripple effect throughout the economy, leading to widespread business failures, job losses, and a decline in consumer spending. Now, the stock market crash was was bad enough, but I find. What's most interesting about the date, I guess less about the date, but more the, the aftermath and how the U.S. government chose to address um, the widespread economic and social hardship. So that that primarily fell to uh, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was elected in 1932. So just a few years after the uh, after the stock market crash, 
And so uh, FDR implemented a number of policies and programs collectively known as the New Deal. Um, the New Deal aimed to provide relief, recovery, and reform for the American people and include a wide range of initiatives such as public works programs, social welfare programs such as Social Security and unemployment insurance, banking and financial reform, um, which uh, led to the creation of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC for short, um, and also a number of uh, labor protections, including the National Labor Relations Act and the Fair Labor Standards Act, um, both of which protected workers' rights and improved working conditions. Now, I think the New Deal is particularly important because it's an instance of you know, one of the largest expansions of the government's power um, in the, the history, of, history of the country. Yeah, Ricky loves um, this era. And, uh, you know, the government's, the federal government's, um, you know, growing role and influence on the economy and society um, and kind of exerting a greater degree over, you know, people's everyday lives. So, uh, and I think, you know, the expansion of power definitely set a precedent for other expansions of power that came later. Um, so I think this is kind of a, a big turning point um, in terms of, uh, the government's role in uh, addressing and economic hardships. Yeah, definitely. And I think like it had like it, it started paving the way for the U.S. trying to put into a lot of like protections around like financial markets. So you had like the Glass-Steagall Act, which mm-hmm. not around anymore. But um, then you have like the SEC being formed in 1934. So it's a lot more regulation. I think like I think the I think it was the government was starting to realize that a lot of these. The markets need to be checked and there was um so with like the establishment of like you know these greater protections for like financial markets so yep yeah i mean it was it's i, I mean again sort of the cyclical nature of um uh, of i mean almost of everything there was a huge amount of speculation in the stock market a lot of these margin trades which you're, you hear a lot of those things are coming up today, right? Like with what was going on with GameStop and stuff, basically ways to, to, yeah, you could, you kind of multiply your exposure on the upside, but also you can have sort of catastrophic effects in the, in the other direction with short selling and, and other issues. And it's just interesting that almost like a hundred years later, exactly that some of these things are, are kind of coming up again and that we do have this constant, like, you know, we, we, we regulate and then there's like a period where everyone's like, these regulations are killing us. They're, they're, you know, restricting economies and all these things. And then we sort of peel them apart and peel them apart and peel them apart. And then all of a sudden you have something like you had during the great depression. I think the other thing that comes out of it that we're also dealing a lot with now, social security um, that's a Roosevelt thing right right from that time specifically because of the the idea that we shouldn't have like elderly people with all of their savings and things potentially tied up in in these risky endeavors. I think that's like a but you know potentially to Kelly's point too now something that we're we have to like deal grapple with that it's now effectively an entitlement that's that is a big debt on on society on like on our economy and our on our like young people primarily so it's like a but they're kind of like a double-edged sword what, so, social security yeah 
All right, Rick, you, uh, you're up for the final pick of the third round. Okay. Um, For this pick, I am going to go May 18th, 1896. Oh, I think I actually had that. Yeah. Any, uh, any guesses? Wait, wait. What was the date again? May 18th, 1896. So it's not on my board. I have a guess. Damn, I'll let you I'll give you a minute to look it up. Wait, yeah, because I just, I just deleted that by itself. May 1896? 1896. Oh. Actually, went a little bit. Uh, oh, yeah. You have it? Oh, no, I didn't have it, but no. All right, well, I'm going to say Spanish-American War. Mm-hmm. Where that, I, I, that is the right time-ish, I think, but not what I was thinking of. Hmm. It's a good one. It wasn't on my board, though. I thought it was. Fun. Joe, any guesses? <laughs> no. McKinley's not assassinated yet. Nope. Uh, think about more. Uh, this is domestic politics. Yeah. All right. Scotus. Uh, Parkinson. All right. <laughs> give, me, give me enough guesses. I'll get there. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, I really, I'm so actually kind of surprised that we haven't talked more about court cases. Um, yeah. I think, is this the first one? Yeah. First one. So, I mean, I'll obviously. I've debating about that too, in terms of like looking at like the list. I was just like, where does it I fit? Mean, because, like, yeah, like, court cases, because, like, a lot of the problem is, like, things happen, then they get overturned later on, you know, and just, like, yeah, it's tricky, so. True. And and I think, you know, Plessy v. Fer- v. Ferguson gets sort of lumped into, again, like, I, I, in this exercise, I thought a lot about how I learned about American history, and, like. It means it was a good exercise. Oh, no, 100%. 100%. And, and I felt like, you know we spent a lot of times on, on the actual armed conflict. So like when you were like the Spanish American war, I was like, I think that obviously that came up for me, but I was like, largely in my opinion, kind of an inconsequential. I agree. That's why. Yeah. That's why why you're like, right. But something like Plessy versus Ferguson came up at, in that sort of list of, well, we had Dred Scott and then we had Plessy v. Ferguson and then we had Brown v. Education as if it was sort of like a, you know, one after the other sort of thing. And and they were, I don't know. It was like, oh, well, this is what's going on in the law. But the case, uh, for those who don't recall, it was a seven to one decision that affirmed that separate but equal is sort of in line with the intent of the constitution in terms of like providing equal protection for people. As long as the opportunities afforded were the same, it didn't matter that we segregated between white and black people. And this like one ruling in May 18th of 1896. So right, just shy or just over 30 years after the end of the civil war, basically and you know effectively ends that period of reconstruction and now we get into the Jim Crow era which lasts for 50 years and is largely the defining uh sort of model for how the 20th century in, in the US unfolds and when we think about systemic racism and all of sort of the inherent problems that we inherited from the 20th century a lot of that comes down to how we set up systems that were in accordance with Plessy v. Ferguson, 
allowing for this notion of separate but equal that doesn't get overturned until Brown v. the Board of Education. But even then, what we are sort of learning today is that like a lot of these problems are like rooted in such subtle and subversive ways that it's not easy once you allow for them to exist, it's not easy to like untangle them. And yeah, I mean, I, I, when I was trying to think about things that were sort of events that were monumental in, in how they guided the next 50, 100 years, I think Plessy v. Ferguson uh, really fits that mold for me. Yeah, it's a good pick. It's really interesting that the first court case that it, that has come up has been one that was subsequently overturned in, in Brown v. Board and is, I would say, universally up there with Dred Scott as probably one of the most reviled decisions in American history. But again, it's all that's all hindsight. At the time, it wasn't that way, and Brown wasn't decided for 58 more years. So like this was kind of not only commonly accepted law, but don't know that there was huge outrage over it when it happened. Um, Justice Harlan gives uh, what became a very famous dissent at the time where, and this is something that is now, Ricky has these things that happen is now back in the news where he says, quote, our constitution is colorblind and neither knows, neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. And he, so the the Plessy case that Ricky's references an 8-1 decision. Harlan is the only one that dissents. And it's a, it's a powerful dissent because he at the time is calling out and saying, this is not right what you're doing. You're segregating people based on race. Nowadays, um, conservatives in the case that are in the case like the Harvard and North Carolina case that are in front of the Supreme Court are quoting this exact language and saying that affirmative action is wrong. So not only, Ricky, to your point of 50 years, but like the language that comes out of this case is still very much relevant today. Okay, okay. Ricky, back on the clock for your final pick, the first Ooh. pick of the fourth round. This is this Fresh is it for you, Ricky. This is round it out. That make sure that Rushmore is well-rounded. Yeah, I well, so I had a pick that had he you doesn't. not done, had you had you not brought in the Louisiana purchase, I would have. It's not Stewart. It's, it's not Stewart's icebox. Oh, something much much. Much more land acquired than during the Louisiana Purchase. What, you, like Alaska? <laughs> like, yeah. No, that was Seward's Ice Box. Okay. All right, yeah. also, Touché, I didn't know that. Also very know, that was that way over my head. Everyone laughed at him for it, and then, you know, we got oil from Alaska. Alaska? Uh, okay. Well, I won't say what it was going to be, in, just, that just in case anybody wants it. Oh, but right. I will go June 4th, 1919. Oh, okay. And again, what like, are you going to say? You think you have all of them? <laughs> like, no, no, I don't have that one. I, I think I know what that is. I don't have that day, but. What do you have? What do you think it is? I don't want to say it now. Because it's not. You're saying the end of World War One, I, I assume. No. Oh, well, that is right. Around that's well, no, that's November. I was, well, was going to say like, but that's I, world, I was like, is that too early? But that's it's November nineteen nineteen, which is I figured maybe like that's the treaty. But okay, sure. I I don't know. This is not. I don't know what this is, Ricky. Yeah. All right. You went with the Bill of Rights. This is not on the first twelve. This happens to be number nineteen. 
Interesting. Okay. It wasn't ratified on this date. Okay. Okay. So, all right. So well, I, damn, that's the yeah. that's my fourth pick. <laughs> but I just had a different date for it. Okay. okay. What did you have? I had August twenty sixth. I had that's what it was ratified. Yeah. Okay. All right. So yeah. Yeah. I mean. Okay. Well, I get back to John. I will. I, I'll perhaps save some of the background, but yes, I had the Nineteenth Amendment, um, which effectively allows for women's suffrage, which was you know another piece of uh sort of legislation that had been a long long time coming in that it had been introduced in in multiple different eras and, and shot down repeatedly um but here we are in in 1919 we finally have women's suffrage I, th- I mean i think again it's one of those things where it feels like it's been so long but we just crossed a hundred years you know, four less than four years ago. And when we think about like sometimes there's like a notion that oh that sexism or some of these issues are overblown, you really don't have to go that far back into our own history to see when women weren't allowed to vote. Um, which is it's it almost seems ridiculous now. But as you know, as Brennan was saying in, in the sort of the context that like something like Plessy versus Ferguson was uh, was decided that, you know, in, in 20 years after that, this was a this was still very largely uh, controversial, um, the idea that women would be allowed to vote. And so that it. Yeah, it is that kind of that idea that like the when we think about history as this linear path and especially American history, when we go back to the fact that the constitution and the declaration of independence, which really does cover a lot of these issues was created in the early late 1700s, early 1800s. And then it takes another hundred years to get women's suffrage. And obviously we're still struggling with a lot of issues of inequality across genders, across races, and in so many different ways today, a hundred years on from that. Yeah. I, I like, I guess, yeah. I wonder, I wonder how people were thinking about this decision in the 1920s. If there was, I'm sure a contingent that like, Hey, this is a long time coming and this is obvious. And we have obviously needed this in, in terms of our societal progress how that sort of relates to a lot of the things that we're sort of feeling today. Maybe the closest one would be like gay marriage in the early 2000s, right? Like these big victories for marginalized groups and people, how controversial they are at the time and how obvious they are in hindsight. Yeah, it's a monster, man. I, I mean, teaching history, I think that's, I think it's always one of those things that shocks people where like we talk so much about how black people in the United States weren't given the right to vote. But then I always made this point, like when black people are given the right to vote post-Civil War, women still don't have that right to vote and they don't have that right to vote for almost 60 more years. And Ricky, I think it obviously like a huge legacy. We talk so much today about how like the legacy of systemic racism still exists today. But I remember when we, so we had Governor Jane Swift on the podcast a couple weeks ago, another episode worth listening to. But I remember when I was doing some research on her, she was the 20th female governor ever in the United States. This was in 2001. You know what I mean? 20th female governor ever. And now 
Luckily, we've had a lot more, but I still think it's in like the low 50s we've had of female governors ever. Right now, there's 25 female senators in, in the United States Senate, which I think is like an all-time high or probably or recently has been an all-time high. But that again, that's still one-fourth of the Senate where it should be close, if not more than one half of the Senate. So like all of these, like the legacy of that, where that women were denied suffrage for the first 140 plus years of the country, it still exists today. And it's something we just don't talk as much about. Not not for no good for no good reason, really. But I think, yeah, on my list as well, that was gonna be my next pick. Uh it's one of the most significant amendments, certainly post Bill of Rights. Yeah, I mean I, I guess just to just to tack on to that, something that I was thinking about on on my Plessy V Fer, V Ferguson pick is that like we, you we had obviously the Civil War. But like in terms of like the change that it brought about, one of the stats that I saw just I was like trying to look into Reconstruction a little bit, and we had two black senators elected during the Reconstruction period. So one ish. Yeah, but you're right. But like they weren't like it's it's hard to say they were even elected because they weren't like popular elected by a vote. But whatever. Go ahead. Sorry, I don't want to uh, stay. Well, yeah, yeah. We had we've had twelve African American senators total in the history of like in the U.S. Senate, and two of them were accredited during the reconstruction period just post the civil war and then there weren't any until after the civil rights act in 1965 edward brooke massachusetts that's why i wanted that's because he's the first one that's popularly elected okay. right like what well, how are the other ones appointed? well so first of all you couldn't popularly elect senators until whatever amendment that was like the 17th amendment like that right which is like 1910 so but they were you had governments that were set up that were like the state legislature appointed them essentially oh, yeah um and this was the case in southern states but like none of former the confederates could participate in the government so whatever yeah so, yeah right it's the big history we're just talking history yeah okay uh well Rick, ricky's done so ricky you're you are off the hook you can breathe uh all right trash here guys exactly <laughs> word next all right really focused. joe you're up Okay, uh, my final pick, you will definitely not give this date, so I want to have you guess it. Oh, yeah. Yes. All right, be careful what you ask for. December 23rd, 1947. Crickets. Yeah. The people are listening, Joe. They want to, they want to, Jackie Robinson in the big leagues. 1947. World or two. Founding of the United Nations. Um, wait, what, what kind of like area are we talking? Are we talking politics? Are we talking uh, economy? Technological advancement. Mm. NASA. No. First of all, Jackie Robinson's first game, April 15th, 1947. You have to scoff at me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does that have to do with like computers or later? All right, Joe's right. Whatever. Yeah. But I can't, but you should have still done this. Joe's computers. Uh, no, it's the creation of the transistor. So, so on December 23rd, 1947, Bell Labs researchers, so Bell Labs was a uh, R&D division of AT&T at the time. So the researchers, William Shockley, John Bargain, and Walter Raytain, created the transistor. A transistor is an electronic device that is used to control the flow of electrical current, and they're used in microchips. 
Um, now, of course, microchips are used in a plethora of devices that we use every day. The com these computers, this microphone, the yeah, iPhones in our pockets. We're not be doing this pocket. We're not be doing this podcast with that microchips. <laughs> Um, so, of course, these microchips. Is that a big lie from the departed? Yeah, <laughs> microchips. <laughs> so, you know, transistors, later microchips, paved the way for the development of modern computing, communication, and entertainment technologies. Now, what's interesting is, you know, microchips are still incredibly important. They seem to be becoming increasingly important, especially um, when it comes to uh, military applications. So, what's interesting right now is we're in a bit of a microchip war, um, and um, it's really become to a head recently, especially during, you know, since COVID with the um, disruption of, of trade and economies, uh, Taiwan, which creates um, the majority of the advanced microchips in the world. Um, basically, the supply of microchips has been significantly constrained since COVID, and that's led to a national security concern for the United States. So, um, because the U.S. military is as large as it is, and because of their great reliance on microchips, um, basically the United States is basically clamping down on the production of microchips, and they're basically limiting the supply of these microchips to China. So this is just you know further fuel to the the current culture. Chips war. Act, baby. Chips act. <laughs> yeah, chips act. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, just you know, I, I kind of think of microchips in the same categories like you know electricity or the. The um, the discovery of oil in Texas, uh, you know, just cultural, you know, technological, like uh, just paradigm shifts um, that completely changed the way you know Americans live their lives and um, you know go about their daily you know daily tasks. So had to add it on the list. I, I like... always count on you for a big time. Yeah, got it. Well, he had at least one. Who was the guy last time? Vic yeah. Surf? Vic Surf? Or Vic yeah. Surf? I was like, yeah. <laughs> like it's, it, it wasn't on my list, but I was I, I was trying to think about when I was when I was creating my list. I was like, stuff that's like we have our like like our our society today, like technology right now. Like I was like looking at like other days in terms of like stuff that we use on a daily basis. Yeah. And uh, I didn't like go that route, but I think I had like I wanted to have something like that on my list. That, that I think it's a smart, smart pick. Yeah, well, it would have been a good one too. I mean, in 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 sort of the same vein that like you can't really imagine life without cars and gasoline and all that sort of stuff. Same way with computers today. Right, right. So. Nothing's getting done. So. Yeah. All right, uh, I'm up for my final pick, and I will go back to this era, which I didn't necessarily anticipate doing, uh, but Ricky, you inspired me a little bit. I'm going to go with July 9th, 1868, which is which is the ratification of the 14th Amendment. Uh, and so since the Bill of Rights, in my opinion, this is the most important amendment that the United States has passed. It's one of, it's known as one of the reconstruction amendments, 13, 14, 15, all super important. 13 outlaws slavery, 15 uh, makes uh, black men citizens in this country, allows, allows black men to vote essentially. Uh, but 14 does a number of things. It's why it's still one of the most litigated amendments in that, that we have. It has four different sections, the citizenship clause, the privileges or immunity clause, the due process clause, and the equal protection clause, 
they do, like I said, a number of different things. Citizenship clause nullifies Dred Scott, the Dred Scott decision, which we had discussed earlier, which pretty much said that like black people couldn't be citizens. And it provides what is known as like birthright citizenship here. So if you are born in the United States, you are a citizen. That is because of the 14th Amendment that was extended not only to white and black men, but to uh, to all people really in, in uh, the Wong Kim Ark case, which is like the late 1890s. But uh, the, the due process clause has been the root of an untold number of rights, rightly or wrongly. And, and But like, if you think of the major Supreme Court cases in the last half century, whether it's about like the abortion in, in Roe, obviously it's been overturned, but even like gay marriage in Obergefell, it's it's all relied on the due process clause of the 14th amendment which prohibits people from being deprived of life liberty or property without due process again there's there's a whole lot to discuss privileges and immunities clause this is a very personal thing that maybe only law people will get is one of the most criminally underused clauses in all of united states amendments and jurisprudence but that's conversation for a different time but anyway to me this is the most important amendment since the bill of rights and does has done a whole lot to guarantee rights for a whole lot of people in the last 150 years. Equal protection, right, is also what was referenced mm-hmm. in Brown v. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a foundation for that as well. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we are on to our very last pick, Daniel. You started it. You are going to finish it. What do we got? One, two, two. Oh no! Wow. Oh no! This is it. We can talk about talk about our yeah. You, our, you, uh, you go with your pink bench players. You'll get your yeah, 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 exactly. Remember July second, nineteen sixty four. Civil Rights Act. Yeah. Landmark civil rights and labor law in the U.S. outlaws discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. Uh, prohibits unequal application of voter registration requirements, racial segregation in schools and public accommodations, and employment discrimination. Um, MLK said that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was nothing less than a second emancipation. Um, in terms of like titles of the act, um, it covered <clears throat> voting rights, public accommodations, desegregation of public facilities, desegregation of public education, um, non-discrimination federally assisted programs, um, registration and voting, intervention and removal cases. So um, based upon, you know, race relations in the country at this time, um, this is just like a huge step forward. And I think it really shaped um, kind of uh, the country going forward in terms of going from 1960 on. So. Yeah, so it, uh, I, I'm glad that at least one of us had it. I I thought long and hard about which sort of date to pick from this area. I I ended up actually settling on the March on Washington mm-hmm. the, yeah. right before that, in part also because of sort of Martin Luther King's kind of marquee speech um, yeah. there, but sort of the idea of like getting 200,000 people to show up somewhere and kind of demand um, change in that way. And, and obviously it wasn't just the March on Washington. There were many other demonstrations and um and protests on in that in that regard it's it's interesting too like a lot of the stuff from the civil rights act are now coming up again particularly around like how states can and cannot uh 
like create rules to administer their own elections. Um, and obviously like a lot of the things that came out of the civil rights act in 1965, many people would point to as being punitive to the South in large part because of their history of actively disenfranchising people. But at the same time, I think, (laughs) I think we know sort of the history of racism and and systemic racism in the United States is not actually relegated to the South. So in, in some ways, some of that could be thought of as unfair, but yeah, I mean, it is, I think it's just another one of those things that like you kind of get taught to in history classes. If like this thing happened in 1965 and then we're good, right? Like now we got it right. Mm -hmm. And even to this day, we're still like debating. Yeah. How are we ensuring these principles and ideals and we're amending the law, but also thinking about different ways with policy and, programs and stuff to try and like actually make these things a reality and but like history class very effectively like points to these milestones these events it's like oh this is like a huge turning point and it was obviously but not in the same way that it like solved all the problems Mm -hmm. or even like effectively addressed the problems in some ways like it was a huge milestone in that we didn't have something we actually had things that were like actively screwing this up and so we we maybe fixed that but in terms of promoting and like greater enfranchisement like promoting greater participation in like getting people of different races elected like we know what the history is there for the 50 60 years after the civil rights act is still not that great so it's like i don't know those are i think these are it was a great pick. I'll leave it. <laughs> Bro, if you just want to like co-sign all Dan's picks, it's incredible. Uh, co-opt all his picks, really. I no, I obviously huge. President Kennedy set this into motion, so credit to him for the vision. But huge credit to President Johnson, who actually got it across the finish line, which was very difficult, as people can imagine, to do. So, really, a, it's a notch in Johnson's cap. I think people are probably aware the Civil Rights Act has largely been gutted by the Supreme Court in the past 10 years or so. So it's, it is very little efficacy these days. Um, and it is likely to be further gutted into in the upcoming upcoming term or the upcoming decisions that will be released in June. But yeah, certainly hu- hugely significant. And uh, yeah, I mean, probably probably did the most right up there with the Voting Rights Act since the Reconstruction Amendments that I talked about. Okay, Joe's been quiet tonight, but um, that's okay. All right, uh, let me run through everyone's... Still a little jet lag. Yeah, a little jet lag. Yeah, he's flying all over the world. Uh, so Dan's got... Um, I guess I'll just read the events. Dan's got the Declaration of Independence, the first successful nuclear test, the Louisiana Purchase and the Civil Rights Act. I have Pearl Harbor, the Bill of Rights, Fort Sumter, and the 14th Amendment. Joe has the Constitution, Jefferson's inauguration, Black Tuesday, the crash of the stock market in the first transistor. Ricky has Gettysburg, September 11th, plus E.B. Ferguson, and the 19th Amendment. All right, fellas, what else? What do what, we, what we miss out on? No, they're all good. I think that's... No, uh, no, no one throw any um, does. Well, I think that's the beauty and like kind of the curse of having like such a wide... Yeah. 
Like there's, yeah, yeah. yeah, there's a big net. Like there's so many important. There's still so many that like I would have been happy to pick that I didn't get to. So Dan, what was the one you were deciding between? I had two that. So well, I'm not sure if like the Emancipation Proclamation was actually. It wasn't officially used. said. Yeah. yeah. So it that, it a little that bit. was yeah. one. And another one that I thought was interesting was the Social Security Amendments of 1965. So July 30th, 1965. Interesting because when you think about like how many people are touching now. So like. The Social Security Amendments of 1965 put into um, uh, made Medicaid and Medicare uh, available. So, oh, Johnson again. Yeah, again, exactly. So. Um, and it was the country's first public health insurance programs. So as of 2019, I think 64 million people use Medicaid and 58 million use Medicare. And there's like 300 people in the U.S. roughly. So like a third that affects like a third of the people's health care in the U.S., um, so I think it just completely transformed, like in term, like, um, like healthcare in the U.S. and it's like has like lasting effects today. Um, and we all look at our paychecks and see that coming out too. So. <laughs> yeah. Good point, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's like a huge topic in yeah. the uh, most recent State of the Union too. Like Biden talked, we talked a little bit about Biden talking about keeping down or like the government using Medicare and Medicaid to negotiate prices specifically for Medicare and Medicaid recipients mm-hmm. for insulin, I think was the the main one. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, pro- probably something that was controversial at the time is now like an untouchable, yeah. um, you know, right up there with social security, like something that's very, very hard because people end up paying into it for their entire lives. And so when exactly. they get to the end, they expect it to be there for them. Yeah. Joe, you have any that didn't make the cut for you or didn't like you consider, but didn't quite make it? Well, I thought generally some of the most important events, events kind of um, were related to the very like, early days of the country. So I just said for this year, like, you know, we we start a revolutionary war. We need to win the war. We need to create our financial foundational documents. Then we have to actually follow the rules that we set for ourselves. So, like the inauguration of yeah. uh, Thomas Jefferson, and then you need to keep yourself together, like maintain unity, like you know, civil war. So, I, I feel like any so I I kind of feel like that's you know a moment in time when the country is particularly vulnerable. Um, so, like dates that I have on my list that I didn't choose were like the ratification of the Treaty of Paris, which uh, basically formally ended the Revolutionary War. Um, I also have the surrender of the Confederate General Robert E. Lee, which... Maddox. Sorry? Uh, yeah, yeah. Maddox, yeah. Right, which April was into the Civil yeah. War. So um, those were some of the... So those are two dates that I have on list that were not taken, but were, I guess, within the top 10. Um, other than that, you know, like I, I had mentioned previously the discovery of oil in Texas. I don't think we really touched too much on World War One. Um, I have that on my list too. Of yeah. April sixth, nineteen seventeen, was the date I had yes, of like the en- entrance into World War One because I just think that propels when we talk about World War Two as like the U.S. into superpower. This is a world power. Like all of the ones we, all of the wars we had fought here were like Civil War, the Mexican American War, the Spanish American War. Like they're all kind of continental wars. This is the first time we're like entering into something where like we're gonna play with the big boys now. The last one I hear, no, so in my research, I did see this pop up a couple of times, but the completion of the, completion of the Transcontinental Ran- Railroad on May 10th, 1869, I mean, yeah. that was, like, the, my very, very last page. Yeah. I, I really had to scrape the bottom of the barrel 
this was here for me. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure it was quite important for um, creating like a national like identity, traveling from one part of yeah. one coast to another. Um, it was a boon for for trade and agriculture. Um, but I don't know. I just feel like no, I think there are so many other dates that should come first. Do you have any, Ricky? Anything else? Yeah, I. Uh... I actually did. <laughs> Look at how surprising he sounded. <laughs> For the first time, yeah. my, well, my problem was I thought we, I thought we were picking five, so I, I put twenty things on. <laughs> I don't know. Don't ask. Anyways, so when you said when you said um, when you did the Louisiana purchase, my the one that I would have done had you not done that was the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. This happened in February 2nd of 1848, which is the end of the Mexican-American War. Yeah. And basically, all of the territory, west, like Texas and Texas, west, New Mexico, Arizona, yeah. Cal- Northern, uh, Southern California, all, all of that. Yeah. The, yeah, exactly. All of that was under Mexican territory at the mm-hmm. time. And so, like, this was also, you know, following Monroe, uh, Kelly talked about it a little bit, Manifest Destiny, like this idea that American expansion westward was predetermined. Obviously, you t- also touched on that while we think about it in, in rosy terms, obviously it came at the price for, for a lot of native tribes and, and peoples who got pushed out of their lands as well. Like in many ways, Mexican and, and Spanish rule of these areas was not uh, not exactly welcome either. Yeah. So so yeah, it's. I mean, of course, history is always complicated, but I think that that was, yeah, it's it's massive in terms of thinking about how where the U.S. is today. I mean, you talked about oil. Oil in Texas is a huge part of how we were able to grow our economy in leaps and bounds when others coming out of World War II and stuff were in a much tighter in a much tighter position, right? So I think. I think there are, yeah, when I think, I mean, when I think about things that contribute to how the U.S. got to where it is, there's like so much in terms of invention and creativity and hard work. And then there's also like a ton of just opportunity and natural resources and natural protections. Like we were able to grow in this kind of bubble because before there were planes, you had to take a frigging ship like for a month and a half to get <laughs> across the Atlantic to come like fight us. Like, how are you going to do that? Right. Like there, there are a lot of things that really worked in our favor while we were sort of small and fledgling. And one a for me being the Louisiana purchase. And then 50 years after that, you've got, we've basically got the rest of the United States. And I think that's interesting too. Like, there are states that are barely 140, 130 years old. Um, well, I mean, Alaska and Hawaii are like 60 years old. Right. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. yeah, even then. So it feels like 50 states on the flag. Like yeah. it was always like that. Right. But it really, I mean, obviously the history of the United States is young compared to the history of many places in the world. But even then, the history of like our, the union as it is today is very yeah. it's even is younger still so that was definitely on there um what was the other one that i thought about <laughs> you saying this is not a european history <laughs> oh my god yeah. no all right so i had the fall of the berlin wall and while that's obviously not a direct 
uh, event in American history. Yeah. I mean, this I, it would have been. I, I totally see where you're going with this, but it would have been hilarious. Yeah. But I mean, like in terms of solidifying. Right at all. at that time, it was the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and you have the fall of the Serbian, the the Berlin Wall, and all of a sudden, that's a huge vacuum for like the kind of the the balance of like two world superpowers. Right then, you almost have a twenty year reign reign that that sound that makes it sound bad, but really of unchallenged global like we could go anywhere and do anything, and nobody was going to come say anything to us right yeah. like now we're entering kind of an interesting inflection point where you've got like china is an economy that rivals our size you obviously have russia kind of saying that like hey we're going to do whatever we want and see how you can come and stop us and we're trying to like figure that out right now and it's a it's definitely a different landscape than where we were at the fall of the berlin wall all right, I'm gonna rattle off a bunch for you guys. You can comment or not. And uh, end of ending of the war of 1812, like the first kind of major test in the United States. Like, can we stand up on our own? D Day, June 6, 1944. Yeah. Like, the, again, that's kind of a European thing, but also like turning the tide of World War II. Trio of assassinations: Lincoln, JFK, and MLK. I think are all huge points. MLK's "I Have a Dream" speech, March on Washington. Ricky, you mentioned that. The fall of Saigon in Vietnam. I kind of I couldn't find a date for Vietnam. Because it's just like one of those quagmires where we're in for 13 years, but like that was a significant moment of like we lost this war, you know, and like that's the first kind of humbling moment for the United States in a lot of ways. Uh, and then we didn't talk too many. Ricky, besides September 11th, we didn't really do any modern dates. Yeah, three that I thought of, I didn't think they merited like top 16, but Obama's election. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that too. Trump's election. Yeah, and January 6th, which I all thought are historic dates, all each. For very different reasons. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think some of that stuff makes sense that we didn't pick up because the effects of them are still being yeah. kind of figured out. We don't know yeah. what the effects of them are. Uh, but like if we, you know, if, if people are doing this exercise in 50 years, I think those are dates that they might point to more of like, wow, this is a big inflection point in United States history for different reasons. I think if we're doing Ricky's uh, five man, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had, I had at least Google told me the U S withdrawal from Vietnam was March 29th, 1973, but I, well, we're out by then, but then this is the uh, total defeat of the, yeah, our yeah. allies there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Well, hope people enjoyed this, this history lesson. I think we did. We always, we always have fun at this. And I think we always learn a lot and we appreciate people that listen and to give us feedback as always. If, uh, if you do enjoy it, please keep listening. Yeah. And if we miss it, if we yeah, miss it, yeah, yeah, day, please, yeah. uh, please shout it out. Throw it, throw in the comments on Instagram. Uh, follow us. Shoot at, us, shoot us at a... <laughs> underscore gentlemen's underscore disagreement. <laughs> like, subscribe, all those things. Follow all those things in the podcast. Yeah, exactly. All right, but thank you. Uh, this is this is a long one. We appreciate that you stuck with us. Thank you to Dan and Joe for joining us. We never thought, honestly, that we'd be doing this for three years, that they, you guys have been back. Hopefully, we can come and do it again next year. If people have ideas for a, a <laughs> President's Day draft <laughs> next year. Uh, let us know about that, too. All right, um, that's it.
We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head and folks of different minds Because even though it did not share Pains we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten Values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share opinions, we share an American ideal. Friends made over arguments. In an early morning bus I need an early morning bus There's hope behind the bluster Cause the old main street may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win, some days will leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for hope I used to find in case of lion's head. Folks of different minds, because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. What I wouldn't give for. The hope I used to find in a case of lion's head Folks are different minds Because though we did not share opinions We share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz